Hi everyone, and welcome to God's Plan, Your Part, a podcast where our goal is to read the entire Bible in a year, seeking to understand God's plan of redemption while discovering daily and practically your part in it. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today we are going to make it into Romans uh, chapter 1 to chapter 3, and Romans is intense. Uh, We're also going to cover just three verses in Acts chapter 20, uh, basically just to show that Paul made it to Corinth. So, so yesterday we wrapped up the Corinthian letters. Today we're reading just three verses to show that Paul eventually made it to Corinth. Um, he, you've heard him several times talking about how badly he wants to get there, how much he needs to see them in person and address some of the issues in the church. So Paul does make it there, and we read that in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And it's most likely while he was staying in Corinth that he wrote to the Christians in Rome. Now, the issue in the church in Rome is very interesting. It's pretty widely understood uh, that the church in Rome was very diverse. Um, So a lot of the other churches that we've talked about had some Jews, but mostly Gentiles. Uh, The church in Rome is a little bit different in that there is a pretty even group of both. There's a lot of Jews there. There's a lot of Gentiles there. They are worshiping together. And Paul's writing the book of Romans to explain Uh, that Jesus pays for our sin, essentially establishing that we are all sinners. Uh, We'll see that in chapter 3. We all need forgiveness. We all need grace. That grace comes only by Jesus. Jesus covers the sins of the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, and then we are set free uh, by the sacrifice of Jesus. So the book of Romans is very sharp. I mean, I'm excited to go through this book. The language is kind of intense. Um, You do have to kind of pay attention to it while you're reading. It's not as natural of a read as some of these other letters, um, but it's it's really, really valuable, especially to um, just like establishing the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, the book of Romans is very good for that. One of the cool things, I think the cool things, that Paul does in the book of Romans is that because there's kind of two unintentionally opposing audiences, so you have the Gentiles and the Jews kind of they would have their tension points. The Jews would be focused on the law. Uh, the Gentiles would be focused on the freedom that they have in Christ. And they both come from very different backgrounds. You'll see that the Gentiles come from like this pagan idolatry um, where there's a lot of shameful things that have been practiced in their uh, history. And the Jews, basically the shame of the Jews is that they were given the law. Uh, Paul talks about how they were given the oracles of God and they disobeyed them over and over and over again. So the the fault of both parties is a little bit different. And the cool thing that Paul is going to do is when he comes out against one party, basically uh, letting them know about their <laughs> faults and their, their shortcomings and their issues, uh, then he will quickly turn and address the faults of the other party uh, so that nobody feels like they have the upper hand. And that's exactly what's going on here in chapter one and chapter two. Chapter one is kind of, one, it's his greetings, and it's talking about uh, who he wants to visit and how he wants to visit. But it is establishing the history of sin and fallenness and brokenness among Gentiles. And I've heard it described once where like just as the the Jews would be listening to this letter being read and feeling like, yeah, those Gentiles, they are, they're nasty, they're bad. Uh, Just as they would start feeling that way, Paul turns and says, and you, you have some issues too. So I I like how he writes this book. Um, I think it's, it's pretty interesting how he covers the faults of both sides. 
Uh, and I think we should we should jump into it a little bit here. So Romans 1 is kind of a famous passage as being probably one of those clobber passages that some people like to refer to. Um, specifically, probably uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What Romans 1 is going to do is establish the fact that everybody has a sense of who God is. And this is not just an academic exercise for Paul. This is not just a tool of persuasion for his letter. Uh, This is the truth. Everybody is created by God in his image. Everybody has some kind of innate desire uh, to have relationship with God. And if somebody tells you that they have not sensed that or thought that, they're lying. That, that is just simply not true. Everyone has a sense of uh, there being a higher power. Everybody has a sense of there being a God. Uh, just not everybody follows up on that sense. And, and still in our world today, there are, there are people who do not know um, who God is or who Jesus is or who the Holy Spirit is. Like they, they just don't know, which is why we still need to be proclaiming the truth to people who have not had an opportunity to receive it. But what Paul's going to do is basically establish that um, the Gentiles in, in Roman culture, like they had an opportunity to turn to God, but instead they turned to their own passions and their own desires. And you get this sense of God uh, pursuing them to some degree. Um, if you look in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. This is the idea that God built you uh, and built the world around you uh, on purpose to draw attention to himself. So Paul is recognizing this, saying everybody has a sense of who God is and they're drawn to him, but they turn away from that. Verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is what people do still in our world today. Um, they they have that sense of uh, who God is and that sense of needing God in their lives. But instead of following the one true God, they just create other gods uh, that support their passions and desires instead of drawing them away from them. And that's what you see happening here in the the chapter, the chapter turns in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So I, I've taught this passage before, um, and it, it can be a tricky passage to teach just because certain people um, react pretty strongly against this passage. Um, but I think it's helpful to have the visual of pulling a wagon up a hill. And so God is pulling these people in this wagon up the hill, like constantly giving them opportunities to pay attention to who he is, to see that he is in control, to understand that, oh, I'm in this wagon that's being pulled by God. I see that there he is, and this is what he's doing for me. But what God's going to do is as he's pulling them up the hill and they keep rejecting him and rejecting him and rejecting, he's going to let go. And the wagon just starts to fall down the hill. And what happens in the second part of the chapter is you start to notice just how far 
they're going to fall. And and actually, one of the, the marks of how far they're going to fall is that they're going to have improper sexual desires. It says uh, 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for each other, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's been a pretty extensive attempt to rewrite what this says, uh, but it is clear here that Romans 1 is talking about these these people in these cultures have descended into homosexual desires, and that is uh, an abomination to God. This is against God. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't have relationship with God, but it means they do need to repent for their sin and turn back to God and stop worshiping themselves. So this is another one of those passages uh, where we see that these kinds of sins are an affront to God and any attempt to paint them as anything else uh, is false teaching. It's just it's just lying. And there's always some new flavor and some new take uh, that is just some new version of false teaching. But what's going to happen here uh, that's interesting is just as the Jews are like, yeah, those Gentiles, they're they're bad. Uh, Paul's going to turn and say, yeah, and you're just as bad. And he goes into this uh, kind of lengthy argument. We've seen him do this before um, about the the Jews having the truth of God, but rejecting the truth of God and the Jews taking like a lot of uh, faith in their outer works, uh, but not actually having any kind of inner faith. And actually, uh, the the really shocking part of that particular teaching is probably chapter 2, verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That would have been crazy. Paul's basically saying like, hey, some uncircumcised guy that follows what God says is better than somebody uh, who is circumcised, which would have been very shocking. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor in circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Uh, we, we see Jesus teach a similar thing, um, saying that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. This this idea of like uh, who you are on the inside matters more than the image you project on the outside. So after Paul has <laughs> offended both parties in the church, he establishes in chapter 3 that all of us are sinners, all of us fall short of the glory of God, and because there is nothing that we can physically do, um, to fix that problem, to solve that problem. By the way, he's quoting from the Psalms. Um, because there's nothing to do to solve that problem, we have to have a Savior. We have a need for a Savior. And it's in verse 25 where he says, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is a very important word. This is a very important concept because basically uh, the word propitiation can mean like satisfaction. And what is being satisfied by Jesus' blood? It is the wrath of God, the wrath of God that all of us deserve because of our sin. There is not one single one of us who deserves right relationship with God. In fact, we exist um, as antagonists to God. And the only way that we can have right relationship with him is for that wrath to be satisfied. And that wrath is satisfied by Jesus' blood being shed for our sins. It's like when you get a speeding ticket, 
Um, you can't talk your way out of it. You can't just avoid it. You can't ignore it. The only way you can satisfy a speeding ticket is to pay it. If you don't pay it, uh, you'll come under more significant penalties. So we are all under sin, and if we do not pay for that sin, we will come under God's wrath, and the payment for God's sin is Jesus' blood, and Jesus' blood is our propitiation that gives us right relationship with God. So that's kind of the opening argument of Romans. Uh, I like how he's specifically calling out both parties, helping them to understand their need for Jesus And that remains true today. Anytime that we are convinced that we have right relationship with God uh, because of what we do or what we say or how we look or how we act or how we love or how we uh, forgive, like none of that gives us right relationship with God. Only Jesus' uh, blood pays for our sin. Only Jesus' death and resurrection enables us to conquer sin and death and have right relationship with God. And if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, uh, you should do so. Um, As far as the your part, I think that's the biggest one. And one of the interesting things about the gospel is that when Paul is writing the gospel, it's almost never to unbelievers. It's almost always to believers. So you'll see that Paul is constantly reminding people who are already following Jesus to continue following Jesus. So that's the your part for today. Uh, Continue following Jesus, persevere, uh, stick to this faith, and trust that his blood has paid for your sin and enjoy the new life that you have in Christ, the new life that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians. Uh, So Romans is an excellent book. I think we're going to have a a pretty good journey ahead of us. I'm excited to walk through this book, and we'll be back again tomorrow looking at Romans 4 to 7. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening to God's Plan Your Part. Don't forget, it is always more important that you listen to God's words rather than our words. So please stick around to hear the reading for the day uh, or go and find it in the Bible and read it yourself. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and write a review on whatever platform you are using to listen to us. Now that we have all that out of the way, here is the reading for today. Acts chapter 20. Verses 1 to 3. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, for I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up, in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhors idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, but by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Chapter 3 Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just in the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thanks so much for listening to God's Plan, Your Part. If anything stuck out to you, if you have any questions, or if you'd like to receive a Bible, you can email us at godsplanyourpart at gmail.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting us through the link in our description. We love that you're on this journey with us, and we hope you have a great day. See you tomorrow.